For Monday, July 16th, 2012, it's the Overthinking It Podcast, episode 211. You never bought sausage in Brooklyn. Welcome to the Overthinking It Podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. Your regular host, Matt Rather, is absent. He is somewhere in the Caribbean wrestling with the mighty Marlin and fighting his uh, bone spurs uh, and otherwise suffering. Uh, and, and in his absence, uh, the cat is away and the mice will play. So I'm Pete Fenzel. I'm here to host you guys today. I'm really excited. We have a small show today, an elite group, and a very special guest that I'm really glad to have on board with us today, our special guest. I'll introduce in just a second. But first, for the panel, because a lot of what we're going to talk about involves Netflix streaming, your question of the week, which is, what is your favorite stream? <laughs> and we'll start with Mark Lee in Brooklyn, New York. How are you doing, Mark? I'm doing great. I just moved to the Tony Upper East Side from Tony Park Slope, Brooklyn. So I hope to be on the These Effing Teenagers podcast and, you know, lend my firsthand <laughs> experience of the Upper East Side and how the, the uh, Gossip girl averse. Um, yeah. I think I'll have some really uh, insightful insights to, you know, insight on that. Um, but that's a subject for another time. We're talking about streams right now. Um, yeah, this is a yeah. pretty obvious answer. We've got to go with the Ghostbusters streams, right? Okay. If you're not supposed to cross. Um, and why is this the best stream or my favorite stream? Because of its amazing power uh, to end the universe. Now, this is, has been the subject of great debate <laughs> on the Overthinking It uh, website as to whether uh, you know, the, the crossing the streams uh, you know, ends all life as we know it. Um, or, uh, you know, like, as in, like, the entire uh, existence of the universe, or just causes a lot of destruction within the immediate vicinity. I um, am a strong adherent to the uh, ends all life in the universe, ends the existence of the universe uh, camp uh, right. you know, in Ghostbusters studies, and, uh, and, and I will take that to my grave. Uh, you ever see the streams as homoerotic? No. No, you never no. see them as homoerotic? <laughs> No, where do you get that from, Pete? Well, because it's forbidden. Yeah, I think I think you're overthinking it. Oh, with the I, I thank think you. That's a bit of a stretch. You, I, I knew it was you, Mark Lee. You broke my heart that you would say that to me. Oh, it's terrible. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, well, there you go. So you, you first, you don't cross the streams. Then you cross the streams when you have to. Uh, and when someone asks you if you're a god, what do you say? You say. Um, you should say yes. That's correct. You've watched the movie. Awesome. <laughs> All right. So um, I will uh, I'll actually answer it myself because we want to save our big guest for last. Uh, but I'll be really quick, and I'm going to say the stream of consciousness in the final chapter of Ulysses. Uh, yes, yes, I said yes, yes. Yes, yes, yes. Awesome. Perfect. Wonderful. Uh, meet your wife. Having a grand time. Uh, stream of consciousness writing is pretty cool. I recommend getting a journal, doing some automatic writing. And every time the Dolph Lundgren slips into the automatic writing, uh, buy yourself something nice you know this is a way of marking time because it happens from time to time all right so now we'll ask our special guest today uh thanks very much for coming on the show new york-based comedian mark malkoff mark how are you doing i'm doing great thanks for having me on our pleasure, definitely. Now, those of you who don't know Mark, Mark is particularly famous for his Netflix challenge, where why don't you quickly tell everybody what you did, and then tell us about your favorite stream. But first, sort of, if you could tell everybody the, the feat that you accomplished, and, uh, and one of the reasons, many reasons why you're you know, deserving of your widespread international stardom that you've achieved at this point oh, in your life. Oh, gosh. Uh, well, I wanted to see how many movies I could watch on Netflix in a month and get my best possible value for my seven ninety nine. Just kind of take advantage 
more than anybody in the history. So I watched 252 films on Netflix in a month, which is 404.25 hours, and that worked out to 3.2 cents per film. <laughs> yes. Oh, and you wanted to know my favorite stream. My favorite stream is the Rocky stream in Hawaii because Wikipedia uses that as an example. If you go to stream in Wikipedia, <laughs> that's the photo. Uh, I thought there was a Rocky stream in Hawaii, but we, we learned you, something. Yes, you're going to fit right in. You've already figured out the secret, which is Wikipedia everything. And then just <laughs> Wikipedia over the podcast. Yes. Yeah, we yes. do this all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, man. So so those are our streams. And could you tell us a little bit more just about this whole experience? I, I don't know. Sure. This is, I mean, I'm picking this up. This is something that's been picked up in the media. You know, we've seen videos of it. You got brought Netflix headquarters. You've been interviewed by various people. I think one of the people who interviewed you that I saw was German, which was exotic. Um, and uh, I'm not sure if that was true or not. But yeah, no, just, uh, just sort of a little uh, high-level overview, you know, of like, how did this feel? Yeah. I mean, I have all sorts of questions, you know, all sorts sure. of questions about the cultural experience of it. Sure. But if you could tell us a little bit more what it was like. It was challenging. I mean, I was watching anywhere from, I think I averaged 13.45 hours a day, but I was watching up to 17 hours a day. And, you know, I was doing these theme days where some days it would be amazing days. It'd be like comedy or documentary, but I made myself do like musical day where I watched Gyp- Gypsy with Bette Midler for three hours and I wanted to hang myself. Um, even though she's very talented. Um, and then like, uh, you know, I watched Bad Movie Day featuring Troll 2, which we all know Troll 2 is, oh, like, yeah. seriously the yeah. best worst movie of all time. And then um, I did, like, a, a whole day of movies that I normally would never watch. So I watched my first Tyler Perry film. I watched <laughs> Justin Bieber's documentary. So that was interesting. Oh, Never uh, Say Never? Jeez. Yeah, yeah. So it was, it was really cool getting to um, experience stuff that I never uh, check out. So every day was different, and I had people all over the world that were seriously uh, e- emailing me, uh, Facebooking me, and tw- tweeting me nonstop with, with stuff to watch. And, like, some of it, most of the suggestions were good things. But, like, like one of the guys sent me um, a Facebook um, a suggestion to watch Cool as Ice, starring Vanilla Ice. And um, <laughs> I, I tell everyone that Netflix should have their own category for Cool as Ice, which is not suitable for anyone. That. <laughs> Uh, just did something to me. Uh, rap, yeah, he's a talented rapper. But um, so yeah, it was just tough. Like I would say, after maybe a couple days, and the movies got to be like white noise. Like I just would right. stare at the screen, and it was uh, it, it was definitely a challenging, challenging uh, project. I would say. Right, right, right. So you definitely felt like I mean, because I, I looked, I watched your video. Like the number of movies you watched per week, like doubled between week one and week two. Like you really got into it. It seemed I, like. Did and like I, I I purposely try to pick good films, but some of those films, like if you look at day number one, they're long, long films. So like I could have watched more and made them shorter, but I watched Chinatown, I watched Bonnie and Clyde, I watched you know Cuckoo's Nest. These are really kind of some long movies, so I, I try to balance them out a little bit between quality and just watching as many as, as I could. But um, yeah, it was just like the first week I didn't leave my apartment for over 155 hours, so it was just like. It was a really, like, just psychologically a very tough thing to get through. After 155 hours, I felt like I was encased in a red envelope of my own filth. <laughs> <laughs> now, you're, you're, not, and you're not a recluse or anything. Like, you're married no. and, you know, you have a – yeah, exactly. I so, I, I mean, what was it like for your relationship? <laughs> oh, I'm still doing damage control. Like, I don't want to see any movies, <laughs> but – um. I had to take my wife, Christine, um, to a movie last night uh, just because 
I'm still doing damage control. We saw um, this the latest Spider-Man movie, but it's like, you know, I lived on a commercial airplane for a month to get over my fear of flying, and I flew 135 times, set a Guinness World Record, but Christine is still married to me, so she flew with me on the weekends to see me. We had our anniversary dinner on the wing of a plane, so I put her through all this horrible stuff, and it's... Uh, yeah, it's not good for us, I don't think. Wow. So, so you also, to, to let everybody know, you've done a bunch of, of I don't want to say stunts, but kind of experiments oh, of sort, call right? Call whatever like, you want. Stunts is fine. <laughs> I mean, they awesome. are what they are. Cool, cool. So you've done any number of, they're equivalent to sort of 1920s pole-sitting endeavors, right? <laughs> like <laughs> when people would sit on poles for like days at a time uh, just to see that they could do it. Because I know, what, you visited every Starbucks in Manhattan and ordered something from it, it right? It was, like. Yeah, I, was tw- I had 24 hours to see if I could go to all 171 Starbucks, consume something, and um, purchase something to consume something. And it took me, I had to go to a store every seven minutes for 23 hours straight. And it took me a month of training uh, and planning to pull it off. But yeah, I put myself through a lot of excruciating pain. Right. And why do you, why do, you do this? Why do you do um, It's all curiosity. It's always, I just get the, the idea. I, I, and this is my living. Like, I'm a comedian filmmaker, and I just get these. These things in my head, is it possible? And then there's always people that don't know me well that are like, this is impossible, you can't do it, and it just drives me. But it's usually curiosity. Like, I was going to Los Angeles, and I didn't want to spend thousands of dollars on hotels, and I just got this this uh, thought, why can't I ask famous people if I could sleep over at their homes? They have these giant homes. So I, I started asking famous people if they would let me sleep over, and 13 people said yes! You never know <laughs> until you ask. So... It's just a lot of these things that I've been able to kind of pull off have uh, just kind of like given me some confidence. And I just I ask for outrageous things like Mark, Mark Lee. Didn't you see me when I did my carry when I was carried across New York City? Oh, did absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I got the idea. I wanted to prove to the world New Yorkers were nice. So um, what I did is um, I started at the southernmost end of Manhattan. I wanted to see how far north I could transport myself only by having people on the straight street physically carry me and i was carried 100 by i was carried 9.4 miles by 155 individuals over 19 hours wow and does that mean you got the entire length of manhattan no no I, so because that, that makes what about about central about north of central park or no, about central i was up to 140 something it was 9.4 miles uh but the point is is that i was in pain for days but uh, but the point is is that i was obsessed with will people do this mark right. You, didn't, you just saw me. You didn't actually physically carry me, though, Dope, right? No, no, no. I was, like, passing by you in a taxi cab, and I yelled at you <laughs> out the window. He's like, Mark Lee, get out of the cab and carry me. <laughs> Come on. Oh, I'm sorry, man. Mark. I, I know I really let you down that day. It's all good. <laughs> and when I saw that one set of footprints, it was when you were carrying me the entire length of <laughs> <laughs> Yes, yes. Thank you, Pete, for, for working in the, 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 the footprints. Uh, I, I try to do it in every podcast. It's important. You know, we got to hang those religious devotional posters in your bathroom. And, so, so, Mark Malkoff, I, I do have to know, like, when yeah. was the first time somebody came up with that, with the allusion to footprints and connecting that to your... Uh, Nobody. Being that, this, you Wait, seriously? No, 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 no. There are no. a lot of there are a lot of I'm sure you talked to a lot of clever people on the internet and in life about this and we are the first people to have uh, alluded to yeah. that poem. I went on Anderson Cooper where they carried me onto set and they had stagehands carry me around while Anderson Cooper interviewed me and uh, I, I did so much media for this Today Show. I, I was interviewed probably a, a hundred times and no one ever made that joke. It's you guys are funny guys. <laughs> 
you guys are funny. I'm going to put that on the on the show notes. We're going to put that on a poster. You guys are funny, guys. True. Mark Malkoff. That's awesome. True. Well, here's here's something. It's a little cultural pet peeve of mine that I feel like totally lines up with what you're talking about. You know those um, the Taco Bell commercials, right? They have these Taco Bell commercials where they're like, "I'm full," right? Like I went to the Taco Bell and I was capable of buying enough food at the Taco Bell. Like in exchange for money that like I didn't leave the Taco Bell hungry. And these commercials always kind of drive me a little nuts because there's every restaurant. There's no restaurant I've ever been to where given sufficient amount of money, you couldn't get enough food like to eat, right? Like you can go to Costco and get like a whole bucket of peanut butter, right? That's like 10 pounds. Sure. Uh, and like it'll, you'll be full, right? And it, what it says to me is that there's some sort of – there's some sort of uh, disconnect or some sort of tension or something that's happening uh, personally and identity-wise between the sort of scale of things that are available to us uh-huh. and sort of the scale of what we experience, right? This idea that it's almost inconceivable that you could find enough people in Manhattan to carry you the whole way or that you could go to all the Starbucks or that you could sure. watch all the movies. You know, like they're definitely like, you know, in this sort of industrial mass production environment, like – I mean, but so for you, this was mostly about kind of a social thing to see what people are capable of doing, like what I, you're capable of doing. I it just I find things that a lot of times that just kind of bother me and upset me. I mean, I was yeah. really upset that I would talk to people that had never been to New York City, usually people in the U.S. that think that we're rude and we're not. Like we're, we're definitely, uh, you know, in the morning at places to go. So I thought that like if I got New Yorkers to carry me, it would prove to the world New Yorkers are nice. And it got covered all over the world. And like reporters in England and other like I think Germany were trying this out in different cities and stuff so I think it struck a chord so that just came out of like me being angry I I, I was on a New York City bus as we've all been on buses and it was barely moving so I was angry about that so I just I decided to race a New York City bus one mile on 42nd Street while riding a child's big wheel so I'm on this child's <laughs> tricycle it was a one mile race from 10th Avenue to Madison one one mile and my legs were in excruciating pain because the pedals are so short. Um, and I did a whole week of research riding buses and timing them. And there was a 20% chance the bus was going to beat me, but I was so, um, determined that adrenaline took over and I won by two minutes. Oh, wow. So that you yeah. should make a movie about that and they should put it on Netflix streaming. It would you be know, awesome. I, would really I want Russell Crowe to play me. <laughs> would you have Russell Crowe play you in a movie about yeah, your life? We all know it would be Jason Schwartzman. It has to be somebody like nerdy oh. like me, you know. Not that he's like nerdy, but he's like, you know, I'm like, I don't know. I'm I'm a nerdy dude. It has to be somebody like Jay Barshell, maybe. I don't know. Did you like uh I know you mentioned before the show that you'd seen Moonrise Kingdom. Do you like Jason Schwartzman in Moonrise oh, Kingdom? Gosh, and when I I just like in ninety eight when Rushmore came out, it blew me away. I mean the the fact that, that kid had never performed before, I mean, I know he's like a Coppola and stuff and he like grew up his mom's Talia Shire and he grew up in the business, but Oh my gosh! But like that movie just floored me. That's still my favorite Wes Anderson film, and um, I, I really, really do like Wes. Even a Wes Anderson film that's not my favorite, I just wish he was more prolific. But I understand his movies take so much time, and I just really wish Owen Wilson was writing with him. And I know that um, Roman Coppola thought did a great job, but I just, I really do kind of like long for like the earlier works of Wes mm-hmm. Anderson. But um, I enjoyed Moonrise Kingdom a lot. I thought that they did a great job. Yeah, no, definitely. I didn't know. So wait, so Jason Schwartzman is Adrian's son from Rocky? Yeah, yeah. He um he kind of grew up in that world, and then um you know it's one of those things. It's like okay, sure he grew he he had that like going from a little bit of like his mom being in the business, but you know you still have to go into that audition and be able to uh, to like nail it and stuff. And like, can you imagine anyone else being um? 
play uh, playing Rushmore other than Jason Schwartzman. I mean, he killed Max Fisher is Jason Schwartzman. And like, yeah. um, oh, gosh, that just was amazing. But his mom is absolutely Talia Shire. Yeah. Well, if they had if they had somebody else directing it, they'd have Jonah Hill playing that part. And it would be. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> right. So, yeah. yeah. And that's the that's the kid in Rushmore who's in love with the teacher and all that other stuff. Uh, yeah, no, I, I really liked M- M- uh, Moonrise Kingdom. I thought that it was uh, it was it was sort of an almost it was very it was almost like a very self-consciously a Wes Anderson film, I thought. Like, he very much was commenting sure. on a lot of the stylistic underpinnings of the rest of the other movies. Sure. You know, I, I appreciated a lot of the sort of internal references to other movies, kind of pointing out the strings a little bit and, like, the creation of the identity of the characters. Uh, like, the, the die-hard scene, right, where Bruce Willis is hanging from a rope around his waist from the destroyed top of the building, holding on to the kids. And, like, the Shawshank Redemption scene where there's the hole in the wall and they go out. Um, but anyway, anyway, we can talk about that. Uh, but I want to talk a little bit more about this uh, this Netflix experience from an artistic standpoint. Did you was there anything any insights you had about the sort of mass of movies as you were watching it? Like, were there connections that you saw? Were there you know particular tropes that you really connected with? Were there things that you got really tired of uh, within the movies themselves? I just I don't know. I'm more of a TV person to be honest. Like, I love movies. Like when I was a kid, especially, I go to movies all the time. It was just like, I don't think movies are meant to be watched seven or eight at a day. Like, I mean, I remember reading these movie, these things about Scorsese where he would take a year off and watch like two or three movies in his apartment a day. I can do that, but just the way that I designed it, I just, it was just, I don't think it was the smartest way to do it. I mean, but I felt like it was kind of like a mini film school, like getting to watch like True Grit, the original, right next to the remake, then going into Butch Cassidy, like, I mean... I felt like I did learn a lot about film, which was good. It's just, uh, I think, like, three's the max, right? I mean, any more than that, you're in trouble. Well, this raises an inch. Oh, go ahead, Briefly, just like, just Pete, you and I talk about uh, our own personal movie marathon experiences and, like, what's the longest we've gone. I mean, I did a a Terminator marathon, like, on my last days of college, and that's only three movies and, uh, what, the longest of which is about two and a half hours. So that's not a whole lot. You know. Right, yeah, yeah. I mean, my longest movie marathon was a combination role in Emmerich Alien Marathon that went Stargate, Independence Day, Alien, Aliens, Alien 3, Alien Resurrection, Whoa. all in a row, and it went Whoa. all night. Um, yeah, that was, uh, there's like a projector against the wall in like the, that apartment that we all rented in turn, you know, after college. So yeah, that was like, yeah, it was like after midterms, right? When I had no work left to do, but hadn't gone home yet. And that, that was quite an experience. I mean, it was like going through the looking glass a little bit. The conception of reality sort of faded away and the movies kind of became all consuming. Um, and also each of those movies, you're, I I don't know. I was really drawn to the connections across the movies and the stylistic differences. Like Matt, yeah. Go for it. I learned a lot of that. Like, it seems like every '80s comedy used um, a term uh, uh, for a gay person that no one says anymore. Started starting with an an F. Like every movie, like it just seemed like they would say the that word, and it was really interesting. So I saw in the '80s it was a lot of like you're gay type things. Um, it, it, there was a lot of weird connections, like. Um, like a lot of stars like randomly would like show up like like people you wouldn't imagine like there's this actress named Conchata Farrell I think that's how you say her name I could get it wrong so I'm watching Network which was what 1974 I think and then the next film I watched randomly was Edward Scissorhands I'm like wait a minute I think she was in both movies. And like, <laughs> she was. I went to her IMDb. So it was a lot of that. Like Catherine Ross, who's in The Graduate, she showed up in three of the films. It was just a lot of like me like pausing briefly and going to IMDb and stuff. That was, I thought that was kind of a bizarre thing you know, that that woman showed up in both films, like back to back randomly. 
<laughs> yeah, that is that seems like it's it's the kind of thing where I'd like to see the mathematics on it and see like whether it's uh, whether that's something that's likely or not given the combinations of the different. I mean, who am I kidding? I wouldn't really want to see the mathematics on it, but it's an interesting thing. To imagine. <laughs> so, yeah. Mark, Mark Malkoff, a question for you. Uh, one yes, of the sir. things we like to talk about. Um, on overthinking it is these like grand ideas of movies and, and archetypes. Uh, the most commonly refer- referred one to probably is like Joseph yeah. Campbell's Hero's Journey. Are you familiar with that? Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and then like there's others out there too. Uh, you know, the sort of like you can listen. There's a, a saying I've heard once. Like there's two types of movies. One is a, someone goes on a journey. Another one is someone meets a stranger. Yeah, um, like, so did you come out of this after sampling uh, this huge sampling of, of movies like the Mark Malkoff? Uh, theory of film and like there are X types of movies and here's what they are. Oh dear goodness, you guys are so much w- w- more deep than I am. I mean, <laughs> not, not really, like, um, I really ad- admire that. I, I just, to be honest, wanted to get through the month after like the first five days and stuff. And like, I, I you guys are deeper than I am. I mean, I, the whole month, I know I'm changing the subject, but no, like, no, um, like the best part of my month by far was Andrew McCarthy doing commentary for me on, on uh, St. Elmo's Fire in Central, <laughs> Central Park. And Jason London doing commentary on Dazed and Confused, which was really cool because I tried to get him to explain the plot of Dazed and Confused. Then I realized there is no plot to Dazed and Confused. Um, but he was in my apartment doing commentary. So, like Those were like the best things, I think, for the month. Um, uh, yeah, I, I might have to watch all these movies again, just like, like maybe um, individually to like, actually recall what i watched i mean if i had to take like a test retention i think i'd probably get a c minus i mean i felt the same way about college reading like after i got out of college i started going like reread the odyssey and i took like a couple weeks to read each one rather than like the day that i was given in school (laughs) right and and it definitely seems like there's an ideal sort of length of time with which to consider a work of art this raises an interesting question in terms of value right because you set out to see what kind of bang you get for your book how much you could get This raises sort of a question, which is that clearly you hit a diminishing return to the point where the movies were actively causing you distress, right? Like adding that 252nd, that 251st movie subtracted. It didn't add to your general utility, although crossing 250, you achieved your goal. So there's probably something positive there. But it's sort of like – so clearly the maximization of your value under that sort of rubric – isn't to watch 252 movies with your $7 or $7.99, right? It's to watch some number that's less than that. So I guess here's a question. What, based on the scope that you've achieved by going up in the hot air balloon, right, and looking down over the entire countryside or what have you, metaphorically speaking, where do you think the sweet spot is where you're really getting maximum value out of a Netflix subscription? Oh, my gosh. It's, like, so cheap. It's seven ninety nine. So if you're watching just a couple a week, it's like you're, you're winning. Like, do you remember when you had to go to Blockbuster and spend $4 for a stinking movie that you didn't know if it was going to be good or bad? Like, you're watching streaming. If something's bad, you just turn it off and watch something else. Like, I mean, it's, like, the greatest deal ever. Like, I really feel like kids growing up now and i don't want to be like remember in my day like oh my gosh i I just would have watched so much cool stuff like like i would like especially as a comedian like i just would be watching like you can watch like all of buster keaton stuff chaplin stuff like i mean you can just like i mean just the streaming deal especially and that not to mention the fact they have television um i mean it's just like it's just this amazing thing and they don't really in my opinion have any real competition which is kind of crazy Right, right, right. I mean, I think, oh gosh, what I, I mean, there's always talk about the different competitors that are going to come around, right? Like, there's there's like a Comcast, Redbox, Cup, Amazon, 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 yeah. I don't know anyone that uses it, but um, 
Like, it's all good. Like, I mean, it's just like Netflix to me is just ex- like watching different stuff. And uh, if you're doing the streaming thing, experimenting like, oh, my gosh, what is that crazy, crazy um, movie? Oh, gosh, I have to think of it. Look at my uh, I have to look at my Netflix movie. But I watched some like crazy stuff that I never in a million years, if there were just video stores, w- would have watched. I mean, it was just um, you could get really just kind of like um, trippy and experimental and stuff like um but then you like some really bad films. Like, did you ever see the Garbage Pail Kids movie? Like, that is worth less than three point <laughs> two cents. Yeah, <laughs> that was not. Did, did you uh, did you encounter the shark along your journeys? That's one of our personal. Oh favorites. no! What? <laughs> yeah. Oh man, shark Those were the days. Oh, Maybe man. this is a good time to segue into uh, Mark Malkoff, Your experience of going to Netflix, the company. Oh sure, their headquarters and like you know, peering into. Uh, I think you called it like it's like visiting Wonka at the Chaka Factory, right? Yes, that was craziness. Um, that was just absolute craziness that I got to go um, to there. They they just started following my my um, my project. They had nothing to do with it, and they started tweeting at me, and then they invited me to go to Los Gatos, and um, they they screened my the video. And then I got to meet Reed Hastings, and I geeked out. Like, I mean, Reed Hastings is the CEO. Uh, I just really admire his company and stuff. Um, and I met him, and I hugged him, and I think I frightened him. And then they named it Mark Malkoff Day, so um, <laughs> which is amazing. I, mean, I don't think I don't think uh, Pete or, or myself have had a day named for us <laughs> in anywhere for anything, or at least to our knowledge. I, I was no, afraid. Matt Belinky does, but that's he's a special kind of character. <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> I was afraid to ask them if it's an annual event. I was hoping, um, I'm just going to show up next year and, and be like, I sat through 29.4 hours of closing credits for my project on Netflix. Come on, people, do this. So we'll see. But that is true, 29.4 hours of closing credits alone in the project. So wait, What was I thinking? <laughs> so wait, step back a second. Is the, the Netflix compound is in a place called Los Gatos? Los Gatos, California is where they have eBay as oh, well. Oh, wow. There's a place in California that was uh, that was really cool. And, uh, yeah, I got to just go and hang out with everyone. And, uh, oh, I brought a Netflix envelope to give back to them. And I said, do I, instead of putting it in the mailbox, can I just give it to you? And they said, sure. <laughs> That's everyone, awesome. Don't try that, people. No, 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 definitely not. Definitely not. So I guess um, – so I mean, you're clearly in the net camp, net nah, the Netflix camp at this point. Like you're a true believer in what they're able to provide for people and sort of their vision for entertainment. You sort of see this as the future. I think it's great. They're doing like original programming. I mean, who else is bringing back Arrested Development, one of the most beloved <laughs> television shows? And it's weird because I sound like I'm like their spokesperson, but I'm not. Like, I mean, I do work with certain brands, which I'm happy to do and stuff, but um. Yeah, it was just I'm just I was just a dude who liked Netflix, and I think that that's why I got so much publicity is just because I mean I had no other um, you know agenda just to, than to do this project, and it, I guess it struck a chord with a lot of people. There's this woman actually that's trying to beat my record, and I was just like, why? <laughs> "No, you're not going to have fun. you are not going to have a good time. Do yeah. not." Do this, like I really think if I was doing it with television, like watching Breaking Bad and stuff, it probably would have been a little bit easier on my on my brain. But just just a note: we're all skipping the season premiere of Breaking Bad to record this for you, uh, which is why John Parrot John Parrot is not with us right now because he's watching the Breaking Bad, uh, and so like, and he's going to be reporting on that. And we've told him that that's a worthy cause. But uh, we just want to let all listeners know that we're all making a great sacrifice for you people. So we did you guys ever see um, UHF with Weird Al Yankovic? Oh, yeah, sure. You know, Red so, Snapper, very tasty, of course. I, I, 
did not watch that because it wasn't on streaming, but I just want to talk about this movie experience. I saw that. I'm a lot older than you guys, I'm guessing, but I saw that in the theater when I was a kid, when I was in seventh grade, and they had 3D glasses when you went in to see UHF. They gave it to you, and I'm like, the whole movie, I'm taking them on and off. I'm like, what's going on? That's when I realized it was not in 3D, and it was a joke, and they were passing with me. So <laughs> That's awesome. One of the strangest movie experiences. I saw the movie a second time. I loved that movie when I was a kid. I don't know if it holds up. But um, I just wanted to—I don't know—tell that story to somebody. Thank you I for mean, listening. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it has that the the um, the Watanabe actor who was probably in a bunch of the the movies that you saw, right? Because I know he's in a bunch of the John Hughes films. Yeah, he played all the Japanese things. Oh gosh, yes, we gotta yes. we gotta get on the IMDb and let's figure out who this guy is. He plays awesome. Long Duck Dong. So I'll just yes. I'll just that. He's the guy in UHF that's like you're so stupid. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, that guy. Supplies, supplies. And Michael Richards is in it, too. Speaking of PC. Sam Spadowski. He's Stanley Spadowski. Yeah, Getty Watanabe is his name. He's yeah. always been Speaking impressive. Speaking of non-PC things in the 80s movies that uh, they were very common then, they're not so acceptable now, thankfully. <laughs> just a little bit. Just a little. Just Mark's a little. always a little bit touchy around the Asian-ness and how the Asian-ness is communicated in a film. You guys, I am an Asian-American. <laughs> But you're not nearly as sensitive about how Southerners are portrayed in film. Oh, like you don't, oh, you don't watch Sweet Home Alabama and are like, Alabamans are not really like that. <laughs> that's well, let's not get into that here. I mean, you know, because like you know, the, the Civil War. This is this is something that is still really with us, and you know, really got a, uh, you know, you got to put on your your Union or Confederate uh, battle uh, battle garb and really go back into battle and you know, do some reenactments to work that out. Right, to really right. give that the, the the attention it deserves. Um, right. Sorry, but I digress. Let's we're, we're wrapping up with Mark here. So uh, before uh, we do, uh, Mark, I, I want to talk to you about uh, one of the favorite, my favorite things that you have done, uh, which is Little GNR. We would be really oh, amiss if we had you on this <laughs> podcast and we didn't let the overthinkingit.com uh, uh, podcast listening uh, world know about Little GNR. So could you talk a little bit about that? <laughs> It was really strange because that was like the first project I did that got worldwide media attention. And it was it was like a year before YouTube. So it was like the videos, no one has really ever seen them. Like I think they're buried somewhere on YouTube. But I wanted to set out to form the first ever Guns N' Roses kids tribute band. So I had auditions and like 100 kids showed up like dressed like Axel and Slash. And these were like, you know, like anywhere from like four year olds to like eight year olds. And I formed, I, I formed, um, I had little Slash, I had little Axel, I formed the band. And we, we just, I just wanted to make a mockumentary. Like, I mean, I taught the kids how to trash a hotel room and they were rock stars. And we actually did. It took me, me and a PA four hours to clean up the hotel room. And I'm really, really <laughs> proud of this video. And then it never even occurred to me that we would play CBGBs. I called CBGBs and I said, can we, can we shoot there and can I record some B roll? And they're like, why don't you do a concert? I was like, I don't even know if these kids can sing or do anything. <laughs> so we did this. And it was it was like hundreds, it was like 200 people showed up and I couldn't believe it. Like Rolling Stone was their spin magazine. I was getting calls from Jimmy Kimmel's people, Ellen DeGeneres' people. Like it was, the press was crazy. We were doing um, media with Slash on, for Guitar World. Like it was nonstop. I had Richard Fortas from Axl Rose's band showed up to one of our gigs. And it was, it, the kids um, we, 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 we played like a, a track, a music track, in them, but we had little Axel sang and we had little Steven Adler on drums and we'd show the videos. And it was, it was just, I mean, we did this 
for a solid year and it was before like any other like child bands were doing things and it was a it was a wild thing like little slash was a madman like i mean he <laughs> was just like i mean he was like a really cool kid but just like i remember when i got married he came to my wedding reception and wouldn't leave for 14 hours like we finally had to be like it's midnight you have to one o'clock you have to go a.m i mean he was little slash and um that was like seriously the most fun we had um we had a, a battle of the bands with tiny motley crew which i also secretly created so we had a battle <laughs> of the bands at time um, like i'm still friends with a lot of the kids on facebook and it was seriously one of the the coolest um experiences i've ever had and it turned into something that was going to be like a five minute video into like a we played a nursing home in new jersey the little kids played a nursing home which was so much fun guns and roses in a nursing home so it turned into this this thing that was uh, a lot of fun and i would ask the kids i'm like do you want to keep doing this or do you want to stop and the kids would always beg me mark let's keep doing this and we didn't make any money it was just we love doing it and uh the kids are all currently in lots of therapy i messed them up no i didn't um they they, they loved it we, we had fun and uh yeah, I'm just Mark, glad. Mark Malkoff, back the truck up. You created Tiny Motley, Tiny Motley Crew. Yeah, you you, you created their own <laughs> rival. I, you yeah, just told, yeah I, I, you just burned the Reichstag is what you did. That's <laughs> we had the bands. My friend Craig Baldo was a really funny stand up. Was their fake manager. We did a. The videos, I think, or one of them is on is on YouTube. And then it was like the day before I got married, I believe. Um, we were supposed to open up for mini kiss and it was midnight and I would tell the kids, I'm like, we can't do shows after eight o'clock. And they would like be like, please Mark, please. And their parents were cool with it. So it was like one of the only times where we did a light show and I'm like, I have to stop. Like, it's just getting too weird. And like our offers to do gigs were like fraternity houses. And I'm like, no, we're not going to <laughs> yeah. a fraternity house. So I just kind of pulled the plug while it was going well. Yeah. I saw, I saw a mini kiss in concert and I can see how that would be kind of an awkward fit for a group of children yeah, that's like a group they, of little people and they didn't even play instruments like we played instruments no, it's just, like yeah. we did like we had a really good like theatrical show like we we really did get people would go crazy for us i mean we sold out cbgb's a bunch of times and it was like uh I felt like we played joe's pub we played bb king's like um oh it was so much stinking fun but then i was like people would really think i was their manager because i kind of was because they email emailed me about gigs i'm like no i'm a comedian so i just i just was like let's move on and uh maybe we'll do a reunion i don't know that would be odd but maybe Ooh, maybe uh, just like maybe guns and roses will do a reunion you should record half of Ch- little chinese democracy and then you should like let it ride for 10 years and <laughs> come back to it and That's finish it awesome. up <laughs> uh, on that note, I think we're out of time with Mark, but it's been awesome to have you here, Mark, Ma- Mark Lee. Oh Take care. Have a good- no. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Mark Malkoff. Thank you so much. The next time I watch 252 films in a month, I hope you guys have me on again. Well, next time you do it, we'll have Belinky make a montage of all of them and for the last about two minutes. So it'll get the whole point across. It'll be great. Awesome. Now, Thanks for having me on. I'd love to come on again uh, at some point if you guys want me, but that was awesome. Thank you. Absolutely. Yep, sure. Thanks. Awesome. And we'll be right back, and we're going to have a little bit more podcast for you before we're done, but we're going to take a quick short break and uh, be back in just a second. And we're back. You know, that was a lot of fun. It was really great to have Mark on. If you want to see more stuff by Mark Malkoff, go to mydamnchannel.com. He makes a lot of great stuff for them, and I'm sure he'll be doing all sorts of other projects in the future, some of which we know about, but we can't tell you about just yet. Oh, no, we can tell about it. I think he started the Bill Murray Project. Oh, it started already? Oh, I thought it Yeah, yeah, yeah. The web series has already started. Oh, okay. So check out the Bill Murray Project web series where he is going to have a show that will only stop once Bill Murray comes to dinner with him. (laughs) 
and uh, which and we'll see how long that lasts. Uh, you know, there was that email. There was a, an article that was kicking around this week. It might have been a little older, but I got forwarded it this week, where it was like a hoax art article about Bill Murray doing a, cra- a party crashing tour, where he do like karaoke at people's houses, and it was like you're supposed well, to put a sign up that said Bill Murray can crash here, right? And then he would come to your house. That might be a hoax, but it is based in some truth. Right. right, I think of like Bill Murray. Sort of, he's a, he's a weird character. I mean, we should, maybe we should talk about a little, him a little bit before we move on to the next topic. Um, well, like he has been known to just you yeah. know to to crash people's karaoke. I, I don't. But I say he has been known to. It has happened before once, and it, right. to my knowledge, is a verified uh, true historical incident. Um, and he is seen out partying in various parts of New York. Right, right, right. And I've definitely heard the story where he like puts his hands over somebody's eyes, right, and then from behind, and they turn around, and he goes, "No one will ever believe you." <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I mean, it's fitting because we wanted to talk a little bit more about Moonrise Kingdom, which we mentioned when Mark was on. But there was just so much to talk about with Mark. Now we have this to talk about with other Mark, who's the Mark, of course, of, in all of our hearts. Yeah, the Mark's here week in and week out. Yeah, Mark Malkoff saw the movie. Uh, I have not seen it. Um, I, I, mean, I was looking at the list of Wes Anderson movies on IMDb, and before I was thinking, like, you know, I, I think I've said this on the podcast before. Like, I'm not a big fan of the Wes Anderson oeuvre, the preciousness of his movies. And then I went back and looked, and it's like, oh, I've only seen the Royal Tenenbaums. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess what I mean is that I'm not a big fan of the preciousness of the Royal Tenenbaums. Right, And right, that, right. like, I assume to be in the rest of his movies and sort of has been lampooned on the web by things like, uh, oh, God, I just love the uh, Wes Anderson Spider-Man. Oh, really? Uh, I haven't seen the Wes Anderson yeah, Spider-Man. It is exactly what, like, what you would think it would be. Um, <laughs> uh, so, so, yeah, like, you know, like, when I hear Wes Anderson movie, like, my immediate reaction is not of, that of fawning praise and anticipation it's more kind of like eh, not my thing but pete it sounds like you and also previously mark malkoff really enjoyed it a lot so yeah, yeah. i mean um, we're, we're yeah we're a couple weeks late on it i think because it came out a couple weeks ago um and yeah, and it's it's definitely it's definitely a really beautiful movie. And I mean, I was talking to a friend this afternoon, and who's like, I was like, oh, I saw Moonrise Kingdom. And they're like, is that one of those nerd movies? And I'm like, well, yeah. <laughs> well, because not overthinking it, we like to talk about the things that we like, and we sort of have a certain amount of kind of uh, self indulgent bravado at like, oh, you know, Terminator is awesome, you know, like, and and Dragon Ball is awesome, and defending these things against charges that they're not good. So it's kind of funny to be kind of dismissive of the Wes Anderson stuff, which is supposed well, to be. Well, hold on, it's, like, it's funny that you like you, you mentioned nerd movies, and then you. Love- in like what Terminator and Dragon Ball? Oh, no, no, no. I'm saying like those are nerd movies, as in like they are or not? Oh, they're they're not. They're not in the subgenre of nerd movies. Those are like children's movies and action movies and stuff, and like blockbusters. No, I mean nerd movies. I mean like movies that nerds will go see and like regular people are kind of dismissive of because they're not as accessible, right? And like they're they take a little bit more work. Right, and I mean, I'm, this, these are silly things that I'm saying. Like any sort of, you know, the the classic. They always say, "Oh, independent film or whatever." It's a, the main thing is that these are movies that take a certain amount of effort to watch, and uh, mm-hmm. and that's not something that everybody wants out of their entertainment. Obviously, right? Some people yeah. want something that's going to be a little bit more. I mean, I wanted to talk to Mark about that a little more. Whether as he sort of went on with his experiments, he really appreciated the movies that were easier to watch and sort of simpler and more sort of pre-chewed, right? Because it would be easier to digest. Um, so like so the Wes Anderson stuff. I mean, I've, I'm you know I'm not a huge connoisseur. There are a lot of people who really love his work and really dissect it. I mean, the sense that I get from it in watching it is that his movies are all there. Are there a lot of them are about the same thing, right? Which is uh, 
which is the way that people kind of create their identities through the active work that they do to manage themselves. Right. So, so like, throw an example out of that from, let's say, like, well, Royal, Royal Tenenbaums. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, actually, Royal Tenenbaums is it's actually one I've missed, which is unfortunate. Um, but, like, uh, I mean, I'll give an example from, like, um, well, like, so here I'll give like an abstract example because I think it'll be it'll hit the nail on the head more because there's a lot of little scenes that are like this, but it's hard to there's a lot of counter arguments right about well in this scene the movie the scene's actually functioning this way. So like the way I would contrast it is that if you have a conversation between say like a young couple in a regular Hollywood movie, a lot of the lines they say are going to be like very deeply meaningful and pared down and very specifically chosen, right? So it'll be like you know you know I've loved you for a really long time, I've known for a really long time. I didn't think that we would ever get to be together. Like in a regular conversation, there's a lot of other things that are said between those lines, right? Like right. there's like, I really love you. It's like, really? It's like, yeah, really. What do you mean? Hey, look, it's a duck. What? Huh? No, I mean, I love you. Oh, you know, like, like regular <laughs> conversation has kind of stuff like that that happens. And Hollywood and like, like sort of actively written conversation for like theater and screen does not a lot of the time they pare it down which is one of the reasons why realism is so rarely truly realist or you know in, in a correspondent relationship with reality because things are are more meaningfully parsed down so the difference between the way i see it a wes anderson movie and a lot of other movies is that um a wes anderson movie the characters also only say the same things that are deeply meaningful and they're very economical with what they say but there's a certain amount of obsessiveness that they give the characters like about sort of preparing to say things and sort of being very neat and put together, right? Like, um, uh, like in, I mean, like in Moonrise Kingdom, uh, there's a lot, there's like a whole scene near the beginning where Ed Norton is a scoutmaster and he goes around the whole camp and he in- investigates every scout in the camp and there's like a one or two line conversation with each scout that is like very efficient about everything that is happening. And you get the sense that if the camp were less effectively taken care of, if, if people did less chores, right, or if people slacked off on their chores or if people weren't so actively engaged in making the camp perfect, then the conversations would have to take longer, Right, it would be like, "Did you do this? Yes, sir, I did." It's like this, great, you know, like except every line communicates everything elegantly, um, and so I think that there's kind of a multi-layered aspect to this, right? Where like the movie itself is a construction where they put together all of these characters and plots, and everything in the movie is very carefully and meticulously, and as you said, sort of preciously, cherishingly put on screen. Mm-hmm. Like I think back to Rushmore, and I think about the way that he puts on the play with the helicopters, right, in the Vietnam play, and the way that the movie also portrays this. And there's just a whole lot of extra work that goes into it. And a lot of the movie is about this guy who really wants to craft stuff coming into conflict with people who are really into that sign kind of thing. So is a lot of the a lot of Moonrise Kingdom or Rushmore is about that. Well, a lot of Rushmore is sort of about that where like the Jason Schwartzman character seems a little bit more Wes Anderson-ish than a lot of the other characters mm-hmm. in the Right, like he's the one who's kind of creating himself. Um, but in Moonrise Kingdom, it's like takes place in this small Rhode Island island town, uh, and everybody is, has a very sort of meticulously planned life. Like there's a couple, Bill Murray and, and Francis McDormand, or a couple that refer to each other by as, as counselor because they're both lawyers, right? <laughs> counselor, did you go eat dinner? Yes, counselor. I'm going to do it now. Like, what do you think, counselor? And it's supposed to communicate how little affection they have in their lives. Like the the mom literally speaks with a megaphone when she or a bullhorn when she wants to get the kids to come to dinner, like that sort of thing and it's all about like like i mean i don't know like mark 
let's let's talk, let's let's put this let's let's take this conversation into sort of real world terms for a second. How much time do you spend on like an average day doing the kind of busy work and chores that it takes to like put Mark Lee together and like bring Mark Lee out to the world? You know, you know what I mean? Like stuff like your laundry, like making sure your clothes look good, making sure that like your you know your your hair looks the way that it needs to, making sure that you've got your glasses, like all the stuff that you put together to make you you. Like how much time do you think you spend on that? Uh, not a lot, less than an hour, perhaps. Right, right. But is it, is it the kind of thing – like for me, this is the kind of thing I have a great deal of difficulty doing. Like I am – I'm kind of a slob as a lot of people know, which is kind of unfortunate. Uh, and I, I tend to have to put a lot of active work into doing like household chores. Like it's something that I have to like write down and remind myself to do because it's not part of my routine, right? Like uh, it's, it's something that I don't, I don't, I don't associate. Okay, so if you're talking about expanding outward from personal grooming to, uh, to chores – uh, sure, maybe a little bit more than an hour a day. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like I'm starting to realize that, like I'm, I'm, you know, starting to sound like Mark doesn't have time to take out his garbage every day. <laughs> it's not true. No, no, no. I know what you mean. And so, but I mean, like I feel like Wes Anderson movies incorporate a lot of this stuff, right? This like. Uh, um, you know, if you want to think about kind of like man-child syndrome, right? Of like, uh, you know, the I don't do any, I don't whether you do the work or not to put yourself together. Right, and and so movies, if you want to look at them through a certain lens, are about kind of putting together the meaningfulness of the human experience through these sequential images, right? Like mm-hmm. a movie is sort of a sum of individual frames that has been assembled by the human mind that watches it. So there's this idea of kind of it being a created object, even as it is being viewed. And so it's very in, in line with this idea of people being self-created. And I think that um, one of the things that the Wes Anderson movies ditch in order to make them more precious and efficient is like the awkwardness and the difficulty of like feeling together all the time, right? Like the times when you want to say something meaningful and you can't because your brain isn't quite in that place. Like there's very rarely somebody in a Wes Anderson movie who sort of like gets up and doesn't have any coffee and is a total freaking mess and like doesn't know what to do for like 45 minutes and just like – and if they do it, they do it in a very choreographed way, right? Like it's very graceful. It's not like uh, like Shaun of the Dead where he's just like sitting there you know, playing the video games, right? Like um, those kinds of moments of non-plannedness and non-projection of self. Uh, am I making any sense here? Is any of this uh, making a little bit? Yeah, but um, like what you're, uh, I'm, I'm I'm trying to contrast this with uh, some of the, the the criticism that you hear of Wes Anderson movies. I, I think, or, or maybe that just comes to my, my mind. Um, in particular, I think of like you know you talk about like the deliberateness and the sort of the put togetherness of it, which uh, isn't really. It's a little bit of a contrast with oh what like I don't know a little bit of what they say the slowness. Of a Wes Anderson movie and sort of like you know the periods where like you know it's like it's well composed but you don't sort of see a lot of things quote unquote happening. Oh well, yeah, because he shows you the chores. Like that's the thing. Like that's I'm sorry, that's what I should be saying he, is he that does like show you the chores. Okay. Yeah, okay. like if you watch like if you're watching like a regular romantic comedy, you know that to look like that, Julia Stiles has to spend a good solid forty minutes putting on makeup every morning, right? Like in the Wes Anderson movie, you they'd show her putting on the makeup. And then she would look perfect, right? You know what I mean? Like they would sort of show you more of the boring side of life where people are doing – but the way that they're doing it is very sort of composed, right? And like there's a lot of – and like precious, right? Like framed in a way that's kind of dedicated to elevating or otherwise kind of enriching the experience that you're watching, Um and like you know, even somebody just walking down a street is is given a great deal of importance, right? Mm-hmm. As it goes, it goes slowly, you know, like meditative moments. But um, 
but yeah, I mean, I guess what I'm saying is that a regular Hollywood movie would cut out all that stuff and just show you the moment where everybody looks perfect and is saying the perfect thing, right? And leave out the part where like the perfect people are, are like really anally retentive and trying to like, uh, like control every aspect of their lives in preparation for saying the perfect thing, mm-hmm. right? Like, um, I guess that's, that was sort of what I wanted to say about it. Yeah, um, and, and and so what is that's that's the unique thing about Wes Anderson, right? That's what his, his special sauce that he brings to the table. I mean, that's just one way of framing it. I'm sure there's a lot of film study students who would film, frame it in entirely different ways. But like for me, if you want to turn a movie into a Wes Anderson movie, you like sort of have a bunch of people who are actively framing and get preparing to say the perfect thing and do the perfect thing, and you show them preparing for it. And there are long moments of kind of like enjoying the process of creating yourself. Um, right. Like even if it's a sad one, even if you're in mourning, right. Even if you're like in the process of, of processing sort of emotional loss, there's still like an aspect of in order to look Hollywood perfect, you have to do all this stuff. Let's show them doing all the stuff, but not in a grimy or gritty or, or like quote unquote real way, but but in a precious way, right. In a precious way. Can can we, uh, that's what I want to talk about right here. If we can, uh, unpacking this, uh, this term precious. That, right. we, that we keep using, um, and, and perhaps yeah, exactly. it's like in Lord of the Rings. Um, yeah. And I think uh, it's, it's one of those things that's being tossed out a lot. That uh, that word that people use without fully understanding what it, it means, uh, myself included, perhaps. Um, but uh, what, what what comes to mind, and this might not connect directly with Moonrise, Moonrise Kingdom, is um, I think what at one point uh, Brian Williams, the NBC news anchor, derisively referred to Brooklyn as too precious. Uh, sort of like too cultivated, um, too hipster, uh, too much of the local, organic, old-timey Brooklyn food sort of thing going on. And I wonder if that sense of preciousness also applies to uh, the Wes Anderson aesthetic. Well, there's one – I think there's one object that really connects Moonrise Kingdom and Brooklyn here in the movie. So one of the things that happens in the movie is um, there's a record player that serves a very prominent role. Uh, And they actually – actually listen to the works of Benjamin Britten on the record player, who is, of course, a very precious composer in himself. Um, but when we so talk what, about... What, can you unpack that a little bit there? Like, what makes Benjamin Britten uh, uh, precious? Uh, and I ask that both because, like, I'm having trouble recalling who exactly Benjamin Britten is, and oh. I'm also curious to know, like, you know, what makes his music precious. Well, okay, so, so the, let's talk... They play a piece of Benjamin Britten music with commentary in the movie, right? And so... And this, I think, we'll, we'll, we'll put it all together. So the way... So what they're... There's a scene where the children are sitting and the little brother is listening to the record player. Little brothers are listening to the record player, listening to Benjamin Britten music, and the girl, who is this kind of, like, edgy girl, kind of manic pixie dream girl, kind of, except she's, like, 12 and she's angry, uh, is kind of figuring out how she's going to run away from home. And, uh, and they're saying, like, here's the symphony of Benjamin Britten. This is the theme. And now we're going to go through and hear the theme by all the different groups of instruments that play in the course of the music. And here's the piccolos, right? And here's the oboes. And here's the strings. And here's the brass. And, like, and now you're going to listen to the variations come in in a fugue, right? And, and by precious, we're sort of meaning uh, – and, and it's something that's applied to the record player, too. It's that, like, these individual parts of the, of the piece – um, we attribute a great deal of of care and importance and kind of and value and and really like almost a, i don 't want to say religious but just like you 're really almost treating them as if they 're people or if they're as if they're individuals that need to be cared for right like you're sort of you're sort of caring for each of the parts of the orchestra and then you put the piece together and the piece itself is sort of to be remarked upon right yeah, and yeah, and, yeah, that's a great and the idea it. is sort of that because we've picked this thing that is kind of weird right that 
used to be popular but isn't popular anymore, by offering it this kind of devotion and kind of humanizing it, um, we are pointing out something that other people ignore and we're, ma- we're bringing a sort of specialness to existence and there's sort of an existential quality to that, right? Which is sort of like – you could th- sort of think about like the – a good example of this is like the locally sourced chicken, right? Which is that like you're eating a chicken, like you're going to kill a bird and you're going to consume it, its guts and it, or its muscles for your own nourishment. So that's not can, precious. Now make uh, it precious. Well, well, I mean like you can do it in a precious way or a not precious yeah. way, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, when, and the mechanism of making it precious is about humanizing the bird. And being like, I care what the bird experiences, right? I'm, the, I'm going to isolate this bird's life in my mind, and I'm going to like imbue it with the value that I would imbue something that I care about as a person, like or someone that I care about as a person, right? And like, and so and, and, and the right, like, yeah. Aesthetically, I'm thinking like you know that sort of uh, woodcut style, carefully drawn. You know, there's a picture of a chicken, and it looks sort of bucolic yeah. and rustic and happy. Um, yeah, which is all, which is pretty much half of Moonrise Kingdom is that. Right, it takes place in the '60s, and a lot of it is like very carefully crafted visual tableaus of things that are just a little bit too dated to be current, huh. and as such, like draw attention by being strange. There's a Verfram Dunks effect. There's a, it's a bit of an alienation effect where looking at a record player is weird for us now, so we pay extra attention to it. Right, so this is like the the idea by Brecht, right, that you make things a little bit strange so that people can investigate them intellectually. Because if they're too familiar, then people only respond to them emotionally, and you don't want to do that if you're a communist. Right? This is Brecht's theory, right? Is <laughs> that like if you're a communist and you're trying to change people's minds with art and really engage them and wake them up, and you want your art to serve a good purpose, then you need to engage people intellectually by pointing out the things that are weird, by making the familiar strange, by like taking things a little bit outside of what's comfortable, not giving people the sort of emotional satisfaction that they get out of like watching comfortable, familiar entertainments, make it a little bit more intellectual. And, and Verfram Dukes effect is one of the tricks that you use. And so, and I think that like the way that it, that it can be done preciously is this sort of like, because this thing is a bit unfamiliar, it is also more special than things that are not unfamiliar. So it's this extra step in the Verfram Dukes effect. And the way that this record player is like sto- you know, borrowed slash stolen from the brothers several times and is kind of lovingly carried around and they kind of listen to it on the beach and it's this object. Uh, and then in fact, like over the credits, they have like a remade uh, sort of fugue and variations type instructional piece that's done by one of the actors actors where he sort of like goes there's like electric guitar you know like drums you know they or like timpani you know and they play the this theme from the movie um so yeah so i think that that's what i mean and by brooklyn being precious it's like you know if you go to brooklyn now you can go to a fancy place and buy a really nice sausage like they have sort of like places that sell kind of german food right and you get like sausage and and uh and like you know sauerkraut right for brunch Right, mm-hmm. and it'll cost you like twelve dollars. Whereas it's not like you couldn't buy sausage in Brooklyn before. You could always buy sausage in Brooklyn, but you never bought sausage in Brooklyn. You know what I mean? Like it's like, <laughs> uh, um, so it's like that's what I mean by making it precious. Is that like you identify how it's strange, and then you um, and then you imbue it with like a special quality based on its strangeness, and like you turn the Verfram Dukes effect into an act of kind of adoration or affection or care. Right. Um, and it's something that people, I think people do when they feel especially alienated, right? And they're, they're trying to full, it's existential. They're trying to at more fully actualize their experience of their lives by kind of like pointing out the ways in which the things that we love are kind of built out of our experiences. Of them. So, Pete, I, I really appreciate that explanation that you gave. So now let's pivot. Yeah. And like, why is it, is, why is there that negative reaction to that preciousness? Whether it's Brian Williams or, uh, or myself who's sort of knee jerkingly uh, reflexing uh, against the Moonrise Kingdom. 
Well, okay. So think about the sausage again. Like, why is the sausage precious? Well, one of the reasons is because we've imbued it with this meaning and we've sort of identified how it's strange relative to all the Thai restaurants that are opening. You know what's the other reason that it's precious? Because it freaking costs $12. (laughs) (laughs) And, and And it's offensive to people who really need to buy sausage at market rate and can't afford to pay extra for sausage. Like, uh, and, and it's kind of like there's a certain moral judgment. Right, so in like in sort of the imbuing of something with a humanization, you're you're there's also a kind of implicit condemnation against the people who don't, right? So it's like, oh, I had the locally, I I consumed the locally sourced chicken that had a good life. The not you're not just indicting the factory farms, you're indicting all the people who can't afford the fancy chicken and and have to when they want chicken have to buy from the factory farms. You're indicting them as kind of morally inferior to you, right? Because like imbuing something with this humanizing quality is a moral act, right? And so there's a level of elitism. It's usually something that you can't. Usually when somebody has had to force themselves not to care about something, it's it's some sort of triage. Right, it's like it's because they have to care about something else, and they've had to make a sacrifice, and that's kind of what the industrial revolution is all about, right? It's like reforming what people have the time or energy or capability to actually care about in their new lives. Like, do you carry over the model of domestic partnership and marriage that was on the farm? Probably not, but then people get upset, and you don't know what's going on, right? And so it gets offensive. It's difficult. So part of it is that it's a luxury. The way this plays into Wes Anderson is that, um, you know, like Wes Anderson movies aren't going to make as much money as mainstream movies, which means that um, most movie theater, most cities that have like a limited number of movie screens can't really afford to play them all that much. And people who can only get to see so many movies and who like work long days and really don't have the extra mental energy to go and like be intellectually challenged for two hours after like a long day at work. This is one of the, this is one of my pet peeves when people are like, oh, people who watch trashy entertainment are so stupid. But no, they're busy and they're tired. You know, like you, you go out there, you know, you work all day, you come home, you got to take care of kids, you got to make dinner, you don't have enough money, you've got credit card debt, you know, your mom is sick, like all sorts of terrible things are happening. And all you want is to turn your brain off for a little while, right? You like watch you- everyone loves Raymond. Yeah, and it's, it's not even – I don't even want to say turn your brain off for a little while. You want what Brex doesn't want you to have, which is you want the emotional satisfaction that you get from kind of a – what you could refer to as a culinary entertainment, right? Like you want – you have an emotional needs in your life that are unmet because of the strains that are placed on you by your life, and you look to entertainment to fill those emotional needs. And the kind I'm of – I'm having this image of, of Joe Sixpack leaning back uh, in, his, uh, in his lazy boy and saying like, yeah, take that, Brecht. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, so I think that a lot of the I think the the, the sort of the, it's a class battle because and it's sort of like what well, I don't know I guess Socrates would say right which is that or was it maybe it's Plato I forget which I think they all said this but that like you can only have philosophy people would justify slavery right by saying that because we have slavery in Athens we can have philosophy because if we didn't have slavery then the philosophers would have to work <laughs> and if they had to work they could but this is something that's in the works this is in the books right this is like this idea that the leisure that's afforded us by the warfare that we've committed against other peoples by conquering them and taking them as slaves this is good because it allows us to live an ele- elevated experience which is terribly offensive and and really against most ideas of human dignity that are all serviceable so because we pay illegal immigrants a dollar an hour to pick strawberries that's why we have moonrise kingdom uh- <laughs> I'm not saying that's necessarily why we have it, but I am saying that that's why people are angry at it, right? It's because it's sort of associated with this whole idea of like, you know, I get to live a better life, you know, and I get to condemn your life because I can afford it. 
and I have the extra yep. mental and, and, and currency resources to do so. I'm sure people will get mad at me for this one, and I, I don't mean to be offensive, but I mean, like, that's, 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 that's sort of turning the dial up to 11 on that whole thing, but that's my opinion right. of what this so let's, general... let's zoom out for a second, and let's think about sort of the... the uh, if you think about Venn diagrams here, uh, there is a, a, a Venn diagram of, let's say, art house cinema, I mean, Venn diagram isn't the right word. Scratch that. Scratch that. Yeah. We're talking about a spectrum here of cinema, right? Okay. On one end of it, it's like just like your your schlock, right? Yeah. Let's say Rock of Ages. That's a great example, actually. <laughs> right. On the other end of it is like totally impenetrable art house cinema, which is not con- con- intended for for mass audiences and is like you know the utter extreme of preciousness, right? Right. Wes Anderson is uh, not all the way on this on that extreme end of the spectrum, right? I'd say I don't know, like maybe three quarters of that way down there. I would, right. you know what? I'd say two thirds of the way. I, th- I feel like I feel like Wes Anderson gets more guff for being outside the mainstream than he really deserves. You know, like my my dad saw this movie and he doesn't tend to see a lot of artsy movies and he liked it a lot. Like I think the movie is fairly accessible. I, I've talked about it as being relatively intellectually challenging and it is, but it's not like the Cremaster cycle. You know, like right, right. okay, so that, that's what we're, we're what uh, I think causes that friction here, right? Isn't that uh, you know it's not so far off the spectrum there where like people can just safely uh, avoid it and not have to deal with it at all. It yeah. is, you know, t- towards the middle of this of the spectrum, uh, and and this forces people to contend with it, right? Yeah, and yeah. There's yeah. like this, this this conflicting thing here where it's 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 artsy. It's uh, it has a bit of that art house flair to it, and it is invading the multiplex. And, right. And then you know, it, it, you see a similar sort of thing happening um, uh, during uh, what prestige picture time, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. When yeah. studios trot out these, um, you know, more difficult to watch. Uh, movies, and, and you know, often to the perplexion of uh, of the larger cinema going population who was expecting Avatar around Christmas time. Right, 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 right. Exactly, exactly. And I, I think, um, I mean, a lot of that is about the economics of the different of the cycle of the year, right? And who watches movies when, and how much money you can expect to make putting out X kind of movie now, and all that other stuff, right? Like they pick December is the most economical time to put out an Oscar film. It's not about you know, there's that's why it's it's the money that's the reason that it's put out there. Um, yeah, I mean, I think you see it around the prestige pictures. I think, I think that, that if you want to talk about kind of culture war, right? Uh, and culture war is never really about the actual culture war. It's it's never real, in my opinion, anyway. It's never really about the subjects that we're arguing about, right? Like, like it's about it's never really about whether people want to have a Christmas tree, right? Like that's not that's <laughs> not that important. That's not really the issue. The, and the issue is like identifying with certain sort of centers of power, mm-hmm. right? And like certain feelings of security and certain ideas of like st- of strength and like this is my territory, right? Versus your territory. And whenever like – and when the struggle of classes or whether it's some sort of dialectical struggle of political identity, whenever one group where like there are leaders of that group who of course sort of depend upon that group for their power and for their influence, you know, whenever one group kind of encroaches upon another group, there is a threat. And not only do the leaders benefit from kind of repelling the threat, but they benefit from identifying the threat even if they don't repel it. Right? So like if you're the person who for some reason benefits from Joe Sixpack thinking that he has to watch, you know, Two and a Half Men, and we love to crap on Two and a Half Men on the Overthinking a Podcast. Mm-hmm. We probably doesn't deserve it, but whatever. But like, if you're the kind of guy who really benefits from 
uh, Joe Sixpack thinking that he has to watch Two and a Half Men and that Moonrise Kingdom is not going to be fun for him, then like you really want to make a stink when Moonrise Kingdom shows up in your multiplex rather than in the art house theater, because, not just because you don't want it to be there, but more because it draws attention to you and it draws attention to your relationship with this guy. You know, like To an extent, I mean, this is something that Heidegger said, right? That like tradition only exists to the extent that we're destroying it. It's only important to the extent that it's being like burned up and being replaced. Right. And so like, you know, if a tradition just sort of sits there, there's nothing vital to it. It's not important to our lives. Like the only time that we are really highly cognizant of tradition being a vital living thing is then when we're sort of pushing the boundaries of it and deciding whether it's going to persist or not and as it changes. Right. And so I think that, I mean, we see Moonrise. I think a lot of people have seen Moonrise Kingdom who might not have wanted to see the, like, I guess the Royal Tenement. The, the big stars in these movies make them a lot more watchable. And certainly, as I said before, the sort of references to other big Hollywood movies that are in this movie show that it's not really trying to be shown to like a hugely elite intellectual audience. Um, uh, so there is kind of an encroachment that's happening. Yeah, and at the same time, I'm sitting back and taking stock of our conversation and this movie. Um, I, I, I get the feeling we may have be um, this was surprising. No, we may be like you know blowing the uh, you know so-called backlash against Wes Anderson and or this movie uh, a little bit out of proportion. Let's say a lot out of proportion, uh, of perhaps for the sake of this conversation. But uh, I, I think I I will go back and, and say that uh, you know that sort of like uh, the, the Let's use the word backlash, sure. You know, this or sort of um, dislike for Wes Anderson. It is a thing that is out there. Right? Yeah, it's very small, yeah, and let's, nobody let's, cares. let's pretend that it's not out there. Yeah. yeah, but it's definitely out there. I think we're we're articulating what it is, and I mean, it's all it all all the stuff is scalable, right? And it's happening at yeah, a very yeah. scale. But I, I mean, us sort of like blowing it out and talking about it, mm-hmm. I think helps appreciate the movie. And I it's will also- I will say that at least in New York City, the uh, the backlash against the preciousness of Brooklyn. Yeah, uh, that is a that is a real thing, and, and it's sort of starting to really coalesce in sort of like a cultural, uh, a, a cultural moment right now. I mean, we had an argument about that at one point, right? This was about how much I, how I didn't like Planet Money because they said that the solution for America's dairy farms was to sell artisanal cheeses. Yeah, and I was like, that is not a solution to the economy, even the problems facing American dairy farms. <laughs> like, that can only work for a very small portion of American dairy farms. They can't all make artisanal cheeses and run summer camps where the children of wealthy people go Let's look at a cow. You know, this is <laughs> like, this is how we know Matt Ryder's not on the podcast because you know we, we were pronouncing it artisanal, not artisanal. <laughs> that's true. That's true. That. And I mean, I hope that somewhere out there he's enjoying his artisanal fish that he's battled, like the great <laughs> Maggio. <laughs> what do you think? On that note, should we wrap it up? Let's Is wrap it, it up, yeah. Let's take it home. Hey, guys, it's been a real pleasure to be here with you, Mark Lee. And uh, thanks again to Mark Malkoff. Check him out again on My Damn Channel. Check out the Bill Murray Project. Uh, Great to have him on. And all that remains for you, our dear listener, is to join the conversation yourself because we want to hear from you. Are you pro-Anderson? Are you (laughs) anti-Anderson? Do you think that we're blowing everything out of proportion? Do you hate Brecht? Do you love Brecht? What do you think about Ver from Dunk's Effect? All these questions are yours. Everything the light touches is your kingdom, provided that that kingdom resides on the boards at overthinkingit.com. Come to the show notes. Come to the forums. Check out the overview with The Dark Knight, which we've come out in preparation for next week's huge open of The Dark Knight Rises. Uh, if there's people in your town who are watching The Dark Knight Rises, go check it out with them. I know we're doing it here in Boston. You know, come. We're, we'll be chatting about it on the site. We're totally psyched. It's a good time to be a pop culture fan. Uh, and until next time, we are forever your website. <laughs> That subjects the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it, it probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. deserve.
deserve. Man, I wish we had a third person on this podcast. It, just the two of us after Mark left, it was pretty light. It's somebody call me. I've been here listening the whole time. Oh, Harvey. Oh, other Harvey. Did you like Wes Anderson? I love Wes Anderson. If Aquatic with that Steve Zizzo, he is so cute. This is what the overthinking your podcast listeners really want. Yes, oh, give a- ha- Harvey on Harvey. Harvey on Harvey action. 